Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. He was on the bus home, like coming home. And you'd think being on the bus that you're supposed to be safe on the bus. All right, that's the voice of Holly Indridson, a grieving mom, the mother of Ethan Bestflag, the 17-year-old who was stabbed to death on a Surrey bus last week. This is Mike Smith, and that is the story we begin with today. Transit violence. We continue to see it happen over and over again. Another stabbing on the SkyTrain system on the weekend, we saw a man who was stabbed at the Surrey Central SkyTrain station. Of course, we've had some horrifying attacks on transit. Officials now speaking out and demanding action. I've got Brad West standing by, Mayor of Port Coquitlam. Of course, he's the chair of the Metro TransLink Mayor's Council. Have a listen to Gavin McGarrigal here now. He's the union leader for bus drivers. They want action. We need the riders to feel safe, we need our members to feel safe, and that means they need to put the resources so that they can get those police on the buses. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Brad West, the Mayor of Port Coquitlam, Chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council. Mayor West, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, first of all, as your position as the Chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council, we hear the union speaking out. We heard Surrey Mayor Brenda Locke calling for more resources for transit police. We saw the CEO of TransLink say that he's he's angry. He's angry about what's going on. How do you, what do you, what is your thoughts on what's happening here? Well, it's you know just equal parts heartbreaking uh, as a parent myself to uh, two young boys. I, I can't imagine the grief that that family is going through to lose a child. There's nothing worse that could happen to you on on this in this life than to lose a child. Uh, and so I'm, I'm heartbroken for them. And I'm also incredibly angry because I don't know how many more families need to suffer a loss, how many more families need to have their life turned upside down before the people who are responsible for our justice system. And I'm talking about members of parliament. I'm talking about judges to wake the hell up. We have seen, Mike, there's, we need resources for police, yes. And we need more police, yes. And we need to have resources for people who are dealing with mental illness, yes. But we also need a justice system that holds people accountable. The trajectory we have been on for the last number of years is a justice system that prioritizes release over detainment. It preaches compassion to everyone except victims. You have people who are violent repeat offenders who are put back out on the street time and time again, no matter their crime, no matter how gruesome, no matter how many times, to victimize 
an innocent person over and over again. And I do not know what more it will take for people in Ottawa to wake up, for people who are responsible for this justice system to wake up and finally start holding people accountable for their actions. I I think people think that they can get away with anything. And when you're a, a violent offender and there's no consequences, it's no wonder we're seeing this increase. We're seeing a lot of pressure on the federal government on this file. There are mayors like yourself speaking out. There are provincial governments who have been calling for change, including the B.C. government. There has been a commitment from Ottawa to change the criminal code, to amend some of these bail release rules and and restrictions that we see right now. But do you think that will be enough and we continue to wait what well, is the delay? I, yeah, what are what what are they waiting for? What, yeah. what else are they doing in Ottawa? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't I don't hear them doing anything important these days. Uh, so, w- what are they waiting for? Why don't they change it now? Yeah. You know, the, the 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 part of this that really upsets me is that this we've gone to the place where they've brought us because over the last number of years they've loosened bail restrictions. They've, they have, in legislation, said that courts and police should favor release over detainment. Yeah. And, and, you know, and again, like I said, they, they preach compassion. Oh, well, this person who committed all these violent crimes, well, they had a tough life. Well, you know what, Mike? There's lots of people who have tough lives yeah. and who experience bad things in their life. They don't go and violently assault or stab or kill another individual. And this idea that, well, oh, because something bad happened to you, you off scot-free, and there's no consequences. I mean, we have got to turn this around. The pendulum has swung way too far, and they've taken us there. And we need to get back to a more balanced place with our justice system, where, yes, there's rehabilitation and there's support, but there's also consequences, because there are some bad people out there, and they need to be kept behind bars so the rest of us can be safe, so that uh, a mother or a father don't get the worst phone call you could ever get as a parent. I agree with you. Speaking of Brad West, Mayor of Port Coquitlam, Chair of the TransLink Mayor's Council, let's talk about what can be done immediately here on the transit system itself. Do we need more police officers on the buses, SkyTrain, SkyTrain stations? Should there be more cameras on TransLink buses. Let's have a listen to Tony Rebello here. He's the president of the union representing SkyTrain workers. Let's listen and I'll get your thoughts. Our frontline workers, our SkyTrain attendants, they, they respond to a lot of these incidents, either whether it's the aftermath or, or as, as it's being reported. And um, you know, they need more tools in, in, their, in their toolkit to deal with these issues. But yeah, they're all definitely concerned and rattled. Yeah, he says the uh, SkyTrain workers are, are concerned. What can be done at this point? And we also saw the head of TransLink say that he himself is angry about what's happening on the system. We need more police officers on there? Well, I, I hope TransLink moves uh, heaven and earth really quickly. And certainly it would be the position that the Mayor's Council would have uh, to take every step necessary. Increased presence, more resources, more officers, uh, and all of the above approach. And the thing is, Mike, it, it, the sad part of this is, you know, it's, it's not just transit. It's, it's, it's going to get a coffee yeah. with your family at Starbucks. It's walking down the street, minding your own business. 
This is why, you know, this is not particularly a, a transit issue. This is a societal issue. It doesn't, you know, it shouldn't matter where you're at. Let's listen to Brenda Locke, one of your colleagues here, the mayor of Surrey, also calling for more resources for transit police, especially after some of the horrifying violence we've seen in the transit system in the city of Surrey. Here's the Surrey mayor. Things like cameras on buses, how detailed they are, how much they get to integrate the work they're doing with with the cameras. I'll be talking uh, with the Premier and, and the Solicitor General and, and the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions uh, to see if there's, if there's a way we can better resource uh, uh, transit police. Okay, so she talked about more resources for transit police, also maybe expanding or improving the camera coverage on, on buses. Brad West, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I'm unfortunately have no expertise on uh, the camera system, I know they have them. Uh, if there's a way to improve it um, and it's going to help, let's do it. The thing that I think, Mike, and, and this is what's so important, because how many times have we seen this? You get a rash of things like this happening. It commands a lot of public attention. People are rightfully outraged. And the politicians feel the heat, so they say some words. And where's the follow-through? That's what I'm going to be paying attention to. We need to make sure that there's the follow-through. So after the story leaves the headlines, and you know, thanks to you and others who are making sure that this continues to be front and center, but you know, I, too often I think government just counts on the fact that people are going to forget or they're going to get, you know, move on to the next thing. Yeah. And it, it seems like all the promises that were made, it's like, well, where did that go? Why haven't you gone and implemented that? So for me, the most important piece here is the follow through. It should not take a young man with so much promise losing his life to spur us to action. We know what needs to be done. So just get it done. No more excuses. Just get it done. It's that simple. All right, my guest is Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. We continue our conversation here on another topic here. Mayor West, I, I thought it was quite interesting that you decided to reach out to the president of Simon Fraser University about the decision there to shut down the, the football program there. No consultation with the players or anybody else. I find this a bizarre decision. Let's listen to Jim Mullen here. He's the president of Football Canada. This is the governing body for amateur football in our country. Here's his thoughts and and I'll get your thoughts. I have not seen a process like this uh, happen in 30 years with zero consultation. Zero consultation and they just shut the whole program down. Even when they had another, they had an opportunity to play another year in this NCAA 2 league they were in. That was, they weren't being. Uh, they still had, they could have been playing this fall. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I I spoke out because I know that there's a number of student athletes from Port Coquitlam who are impacted by this, and I've heard from them and their families. It's devastating. And you know, just think about what we've been kind of talking about. Um, we want to encourage young people in our communities to to be doing something positive. And here's a, a group of really passionate, committed and incredibly skilled student-athletes who, you know, work their butts off to be able to reach that level, who made a decision to go and play uh, varsity football at Simon Fraser, which for for many of them is their their home university, 
with the understanding that not only are they able to continue their studies, but they're also able to continue their passion for football and to have that taken away from them abruptly with no consultation, no discussion. And, and as you rightly said, Mike, at a time when they could play another year. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I just like, <laughs> you, you got to put yourself in the shoes of, of these families, these students, uh, you know, like the consequences of that are really significant. And I, I think the university has a lot to explain here. Uh, I've heard from a number of people who are, you know, way well ver- far better versed in, in this than I am, talk about the options that actually do exist to continue. Uh, and it just seems to be the complete opposite direction that we should be going, which is let's encourage our young people. Let's give them something positive to channel their energy into. And to just pull the rug out from under them, I think, is a, a real bad move. Yeah, Simon Fraser University was the only NCAA football team in Canada, so they were playing in a, in a Division Two NCAA league based out of Texas. And, I mean, it's very unfortunate that this particular conference, this Division Two football conference in the U.S., had announced that they are going to stop sponsoring football. But, I mean, they still had another year to go. Like, they weren't going to shut down until next year. So there's, right. there's no rationale here that I can see to shut this program down immediately with zero consultation when they, they could have, at the very least, continued to play this fall while they tried to figure something else out for the program. Let's listen to a lawyer here. I think it's very interesting that some of the players here now are suing SFU, and they have hired lawyer Peter Gall here. Let's have a listen to him, and I'll get your thoughts. Now, the claim is a breach of contract claim. These players all came to SFU based on promises, commitments. A breach of contract. I mean, they were promised uh, an opportunity to play football, and now they're not going to get to play. Your thoughts? Oh, it seems to make sense to me. Like, again, if they knew that this was going to happen, they'd probably make a different decision in terms of their choice of post-secondary institution. And so, you you know, uh, you sign up uh, on the basis of an understanding that you're going to be able to uh, continue your football career there. There's a whole bunch of implications for that uh, for these individuals, and then you just have the rug pulled out from under you. Um, and I've heard some people suggest that you know maybe one of the reasons uh, they've chosen not to play the extra year, even though they could, uh, has something to do with uh, uh, finances, or you know they're saying, oh well, it's going to end anyway, so let's save some money and and you know and not have it an extra year. I just think it's really poor form. Uh, I think the, at a minimum, the university uh, owes these players a, an explanation, uh, should be consulting with them, should be finding a way to let them continue to play for that year uh, and allow them uh, the opportunity to transition to then a different university where they can continue their, their varsity career. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, to me, this is about doing something positive for young people in our community. And, you know, th- that's what universities should be about, amongst other things. But that should be one of their priorities. Got a, I just got one minute left here. You've written a letter to the university's president asking them to reconsider this decision, pointing out that you've got a high school football program there in Port Coquitlam. L- lots of alumni and SFU players come from Poco there. Have you received any response from the letter? 
I have not yet, uh, okay. but I have received a lot of response from people in our community and beyond. Um, you know, this strikes a chord with a lot of folks. I mean, even if you're not deep into football, I think everyone can appreciate where it's a, as a, a parent or as an individual, um, you're, you're a young student, you're working so hard, you're, you know, achieving great success in, in football, you sign up to go somewhere on the basis of uh, this understanding, and then, you know, by right. the way, right before finals, that's the other yeah. oh, man. Talk about salt in the wound. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's stressful time for kids. They're focused on their final okay. exams. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, your program's canceled. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, let's talk about the gig economy now. It's growing every year in our country. More and more people taking on gig work and side hustles. And often it can be a part-time job on the side to make some extra money in a tough economy. Check out these stats here now. This study from Simon Fraser University was just released. The study suggests fewer than half of workers in B.C. have a job that's defined as a secure job. How is that defined, a secure job? Well, it's a full-time, permanent, continuing position with benefits. That's a secure job. Fewer than half of workers have a job like that, according to this study. What about the rest of them? Well, 51% have an insecure job, precarious job. How is that defined? Inconsistent pay, erratic schedules, less likelihood of being in a union, lack of benefits. And a lot of critics would say, well, that's the gig economy right there. Okay, what are some of the most popular gig jobs here? Well, you got at the top of the list, you got Uber drivers, right? DoorDash drivers, babysitter, dog walkers. I mean, it's a long list can be a gig job in the gig economy. Are they treated fairly? Let's discuss now with my guest, Brees Sofer. Brees is with Gig Workers United. Brees, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Tell me about Gig Workers United. What do you guys do there? So, uh, yeah, we're a, a, a union. We're uh, supported by the Canadian Union of Postal Workers, in, uh, and we work in the greater Toronto area and Hamilton area. Uh, fighting to organize workers into a union uh, because uh, workers right now, you know, as you outlined in the gig economy, it's very precarious. Uh, we don't enjoy many of the rights and protections that a lot of uh, people are used to in, in more conventional types of work. And uh, we think that needs to change. Uh, you know, just as you said, uh, you know, this segment of the economy is growing, of, of employment is growing. And it's yeah. important that in the future that that's a secure uh, way to earn a living. Okay, have you had any success actually unionizing any of these workers? Uh, you know, we are, are constantly organizing, and uh, there was a successful campaign of Fudora Workers. That was an app that uh, used to operate in Canada, uh, and uh, we won certification at the Ontario Labour Board. More than 89% of workers voted to certify a union. Uh, that was in 2020. Okay, are they still around? So it, ha- it is possible. Uh, Fedora pulled out because uh, they declared yeah. bankruptcy. Uh, oh. uh, to do with uh, with the union campaign itself. Oh, really? They didn't declare. Yeah. Well, do you think they were scared of the scared of their employees unionizing though? Well, uh, I can't speak to that because uh, I wasn't yeah. in the back room uh, in the back rooms of uh, Fedora, but uh, I know that 
they uh, owed a lot of money to a lot of creditors, and uh, yeah. the union hadn't even begun to operate yet. So okay. it wasn't it's, a factor it, in that. Is it diffi- It's difficult to organize these workers, right? I mean, you're talking about, you know... Very like, difficult. Oh, yeah, you're talking about Uber or DoorDash drivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are thousands of workers doing this work. Um, yeah. is, it, is it even possible to form a union I in mean, that environment? You know, we, 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 like I said, we were able to do it before, um, but yeah. it is tough work. It's really tough work. It's grueling day in, day out work. Uh, you know, I, I, I work as a bike courier for Uber and DoorDash in addition oh. to being vice president. Uh, and uh, the way that we do it is we go out, we see the guys with the bags, as I'm sure people in Vancouver see, the guys on e-bikes, guys on bikes, guys delivering in cars, uh, you know, all types of folks. And uh, we talk to them, ask them about how work is going. Usually people are not happy with the work. And uh, we talk to them about how they can organize and how we can get better working conditions. Uh, but you've got to do it worker to worker. You've got to talk from one person to the next. Uh, that's the only way that you're going to do it. And so it's uh, constant work. Right. And a lot of these workers in Canada, I guess pretty much all of them, are considered... Yeah independent contractors right so that's different than yeah. being a, a direct employee can you can yeah. you describe the why that's a critical distinction and difference uh, yeah well it's it's a very critical distinction so this misclassification because uh, indeed they are misclassified by the companies uh that means that they are not uh, subject to the same protections and rights that a lot of conventional workers are, are receive uh that's why these companies do that so, for example, in BC, uh, you know, there's there's been inconsistent decisions at WorkSafe BC. Some workers have had compensation for getting injured on the job. Some workers haven't. Uh, and it's important that we all bring workers under the true classification that they that they should be under, which is as full time employees or, or employees, because some are part time, um, and that they can get the protections that they need. Uh, you know, like I said again, uh, and like you said, this is a growing part of employment. Yeah. And if it's going to be the future, it needs to be protected. People need to be treated fairly. Right. So when you're an independent contractor and not an employee, what are some of the things that you that you don't get? Like you don't what you well, don't you're not you're not eligible for like minimum wage, vacation no, time, right? No, yeah. Nothing. Nothing. So I don't get paid uh I don't get paid uh, minimum wage. Um you know, I get paid per order. Uh, yeah. I received orders as low as $2. Uh, and there's no way that I'm going to earn enough to, uh, you know, by, I work in Toronto, but Toronto and, Van- and Vancouver are both have the same problems of being highly unaffordable. Uh, a lot of people that are doing this work in cars, no support for gas. They get no help uh, in repairing their vehicle, and they're driving a lot of kilometers on their cars, uh, and they get no support. Uh, all the costs are going up, and, uh, and this means that it's an increasing burden on the worker and wages are going down. I've done this job since 2015. Uh, I've worked for Uber since 2019. Yeah. My pay has gone down uh, and I'm struggling to pay for okay. things. A lot of people do this because, you know, a lot of people start doing this work because life is so unaffordable right now. Sure. You know, if they're doing it as a side hustle. Yeah, yeah, and no, I find it very interesting that you've been working there. Like, when so when you talk about two dollars per order, what's that like? A one yeah. door one DoorDash order? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. So, you know. So me, it would be maybe you know to go as far as four kilometers on my bike. I, I use a conventional bike. I guess you'd call it an analog bike. But I know workers <laughs> that are getting five dollars, 
to drive 20 kilometers. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and then they're not getting paid to come back to where yeah. they started because, you know, you go, you get pulled to the outskirts of town. You're not going to get any orders there. So then you got to go back in and that's not paid as well. You're using gas. You're again, driving your car and, and that's completely unpaid. All right. Speaking of Brees Sofer, Gig Workers United, Gig Work becoming a big part of the economy here mm-hmm. in BC and other and other provinces. Let me play a clip here for you, Brees, from the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, yes. who recently yeah. announced, like, well, we're going to bring in some protections for these gig workers here. So let's have a listen to what he had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. This is the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford. Let's listen. We know that the gig economy is one of the fastest growing employment sectors in Ontario and that as many as one in five Canadians currently take on work via a digital platform. That's fully 20% of the population. Yeah, so he's describing Ontario, but I think what he said yeah. there could, could apply certainly in British Columbia too. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of people working on, on these platforms. So uh, did, did I read this right, that he said Ontario is going to bring in minimum wage for these workers? Is that right? This is, so, <laughs> I mean, it's, this is the, a big point of contention, and this is how Uber erodes wages. So the minimum wage would only apply to, you know, if, for example, in my work, when the food is in my bag. So the time that I spend waiting, the time that I spend getting to the restaurant, the time after that I deliver the food and I'm getting back to uh, the, uh, the, you know, wherever it's busy, uh, that doesn't count. Uh, what they call it is engaged time. But basically, it's letting the boss, letting your employer, imagine you go to your employer, you go to work, and your boss gets to decide what counts and what doesn't. That's mm. a terrible precedent to set, well, uh, and it means that you're it means that you're 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 earning far less than minimum wage. That that engaged yeah. time can account for you know maybe sixty percent. That's forty percent of your hours that you're not getting paid for. Okay, let me ask you this because here's my understanding about the way DoorDash and Uber mm-hmm. operate. Like if you were a DoorDash sure. driver or an Uber driver, yeah. basically you sign up and. You decide if you want to take a particular trip, like if you want to take an order or mm-hmm. not. You could have the app turned on on your phone, and you yep. don't. You can work as little or as much as you want. So when you have a situation mm-hmm. like that, how can the company be expected to pay minimum wage? Like what is to prevent someone from saying, well, I'm going to work an Uber shift today and just turn the app on, but then I don't, you know, you might not pick up any rides you don't have to pick up you're not required to pick up rides you choose the ones you want don't you so how, how could course. you so wouldn't you be paid minimum wage potentially just for sitting around not not doing any deliveries no yeah, no that's a that's a fair uh, that's a fair uh, thing to counter with um you know i mean there, there, i mean you could work at a regular job and not do the work and eventually you'd be fired right mm-hmm. so you could have the same kind of uh, criteria there to, uh, to <laughs> so you know, just do the work. Uh, I'd be more likely to take orders that go out uh, far distance if I knew I would be making a minimum amount of money. If I knew that what the time that it took me to come back into a busy area, that I'd be receiving, that I'd actually be earning for that. Uh, you know, another thing. Yes, sure, I could. You know, I can definitely pick and choose, but I'm picking and choosing from the options that they're giving me. So if they're only giving me $2 per order, then that's all I can get. And even if I accept, the situation we have now is that even if I accept all the orders that they serve me up, I'm still not earning minimum wage. So it's, 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 
I don't, you know, it's right now that that's the case. Uh, you know, so the, the pay is that low. Yeah. What would you say to someone listening right now saying, well, okay, you don't have to do this work. Like no one's, no one's forcing you to be an Uber driver. No one's forcing you to be a DoorDash driver. Like this is all, mm-hmm. you, you take the job, you volunteered it, voluntarily take the, this work. You know, anytime I take an Uber, I usually make a point yeah. of asking the driver, do you enjoy, do you enjoy driving for Uber? And they usually will almost always say, yeah, I enjoy the, I enjoy the work and I'm making a little money on the side. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, I enjoy actually doing deliveries. Uh, I just wish I could make enough money uh, that it could be my full-time job. I have three jobs. I'm a labor organizer. I get I do that full-time. I still do Uber uh, regularly, and I also work as a DJ. Uh, the reason why I do it is because it's just so hard to afford my life living in Toronto. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people living in Vancouver and other parts of BC and other parts of Canada feel the same way. Sure. Uh, you know, people do this, a lot of them out of desperation. Also, you know, a lot of people that do this are newcomers to the country and and it's a very low barrier for entry. You know, you can get a car, get a bike and e-bike and you're set, you're ready to go. Um, You know? And so that's, that's why a lot of people do it as well. It's it's out of necessity. I think, you know, I think the idea that, you know, people have to love their job or, or that people do a job based on the fact that they love it is, is, is not, is often not true. Most people do their work because they have to. They need to do it to survive. Okay, so bottom line is you want these workers to be declared what? Employee, direct employees. Employees, yeah. Okay, yeah. And yeah, so then because, they're... Uh, so, yeah, go ahead. So then they're eligible to get minimum wage. They're eligible to get minimum wage. They're eligible yeah. to be protected. Uh, so, for example, in Ontario, I filed complaints under the Ontario Health and Safety Act. I received no response from the agency that is uh, there to protect workers. And the reason why is because I'm misclassified as an independent contractor. So it's not just, you know, getting minimum wage. It's getting protected. It's it's our basic rights uh, as as workers, rights that were won, you know, over the last uh, century. And now they're being pulled back again. Things that we take for granted are being taken away from us. Priest, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, well, I appreciate having this conversation. All right, here we go now with fighting back against an unfair parking ticket. Have you ever received a ticket you thought was just totally bogus and unfair? Have you ever tried to fight back? I mean, sometimes you do. I've disputed a parking ticket in the past, and I've been able to beat it. Sometimes you get the runaround big time. Listen to this story here now. Coquitlam couple, Malini and Solomon Samuel. Last December, they parked outside of the Pacific Central Station in Vancouver, and they were using a parking app. It was called the Indigo, Indigo Parking App. They paid for one hour. The train was delayed. They were picking up family members around Christmas time, so they paid for another hour. And guess what? They still got a ticket anyway, 65 smackers. They walk out. They got a $65 ticket on the windshield. Even though they had paid for the extra time, it, it appeared they were completely in the right. And they went, they went after the company. They complained to the company 
And listen to what happened next. I got traffic lawyer Paul Doroshenko standing by here to discuss this. Have a listen to this report here now. Consumer Matters reporter at Global News, Andrew, uh, have a listen here. She reached out to the parking company in the new year on January 2nd to clarify the situation. She says she got a response 15 days later stating, We have received your email past the seven days. Your dispute is now discarded. Going on to say, please appreciate that we are not in a position to make any exceptions at this time. Please proceed with the payment. Making matters worse, because the couple had missed the dispute deadline, their ticket had now increased from $65 to $90. Nalini emailed Indigo Parking again, telling the company, We were not disputing it, first of all, because we have done everything right. It just seems like an error on your side, and we would like you to fix this, cancel the ticket. Okay, so not only do does the company say where you have to pay up, even though they were completely in the wrong, but then they jacked the price of the ticket up to ninety bucks. Ninety bucks for a parking ticket. It was originally sixty-five dollars. They cranked it up to ninety bucks. Why? Because they say this couple did not dispute the ticket within seven days. They disputed after more than seven days. By my math, here it was eleven days later. So they tried to slam them with a $90 ticket. I I love the email they got. Please proceed with the payment. Yeah, right. When you were completely in the wrong, this company was completely in the wrong on this ticket. Well, this is why I think Andrew uh, does a great job over there as the consumer affairs reporter over there at Global. She started looking into this and boom, right away, full refund and apology for this couple here after Global News contacted this company, Indigo Parking. Let's discuss now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Mike. Paul, what do you think of this case? Well, I mean, the sad thing here is what remedy would they have had if they hadn't gone to the media, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you've got this company, and <laughs> you, 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 you read their correspondence there, or, or they played it back. We're not in a position to... Um, to do anything about it. Come on. Uh, they've set a unreasonable uh, limitation period, seven days for you to to notify them that you're disputing it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> beyond that, of course, they're going to increase the uh, increase the price, even if you dispute it, maybe if you're not successful, who knows? But, um, you know, th- th- that sort of double talk is just insulting. Uh, and But the unfortunate thing is, again, you know, the only way they got a remedy here is by going to the media. And there's lots oh, yeah. of people who are not going to have a story that's that's necessarily going to attract the attention of, of a you know, consumer reporter. Global does a good job in the media in this country, does yep. a very good job of dealing with these things. But, like, what is, what is your method to get to a remedy? You're not going to run to court um, to dispute a demand that they're demanding that you pay. Uh, you know, you, you, you can only really write to the company and hope that you've got enough uh, uh, enough evidence that you can embarrass them, maybe by threatening to go to the media. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think Andrew, uh, there, the report, the Global News consumer reporter over there, does a terrific job, and she often gets uh, gets results here on on the cases that she she takes up here. And this is a really good example of it. But it's that only once, because of public yeah. humiliation, right? Right. It's only because the company's threatened by by the fact that this is going to be a news story. 
Uh, And that's unfortunate. You know, this couple has to hold themselves out that, you know, they may be a very private couple and don't necessarily want to be in the news. No. Uh, Maybe they're, maybe they're, they waited an extra 10 days and the, and you know, it's hard to get a a reporter to, to be interested in that story. You know, that, that, those are the difficulties you have and who really wants to necessarily go public with this? You know, (laughs) like it's nobody's business where they were on that day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, once a reporter is calling your office, you know, I guess it's not unusual. You see a company like this will fold like a cheap camp stool here really, really quickly here. Oh, you can have your money back and we got an apology, full refund. So so that's great. But how many people get get sort of hung up on a, on a, a thing like this where you you miss the deadline to dispute the ticket. Like, what do you think of that part of it? Like it says on the ticket, you have seven days to dispute the ticket. And if you dispute it after after 11 days, like this couple did, then they turn around and say, well, too bad, so sad, pay up. What do you think of that? Like a seven-day period? It's a ridiculously short period of time. Like if you're conducting a lawsuit, generally there's a limitation period of two years, right? If they wanted to sue you for the money, that would, would be their limitation period. If you get a, a traffic ticket from the police, if you get a speeding ticket or something like that, you've got 30 days to notify them. You're, you know, you're presumed innocent, right? And you've yeah. got 30 days to notify them that you intend to, to dispute this thing. If you get a, a immediate roadside prohibition for drinking and driving, you've got seven days, okay? But in that case, you're prohibited from driving. Your car's been towed. I mean, it's been brought to your attention. If you want to deal with this thing, you've got to act fast. So, I mean, this seven-day window given to them right before Christmas time yeah. is just ridiculous, you know? Right. Come on. That's what, that's what this this couple was saying. It was like, well, you know, this was they had family visiting from out of town. It's Christmas. It's crazy. So, you know, they, they disputed it after 11 how upsetting, days. Yeah. How upsetting it is to come out and get that ticket, right? You paid. You yeah. used the app. You're there. You're stressed because the you know the train's arriving late or what have you. You've got family coming. You're you know anxious and and got anxiety about that. And then you get this ticket when you walk out to your car. Yeah. And now the onus is on you to deal with it and you to take your time out of your day and to deal with this company. And then when that doesn't work, you've got to contact the media. You know and and put your face out there. I mean it's it's completely it's insulting. It's insulting. What do you think? What do you think would have happened if that case had ended up in front of a judge? Like, can you even dispute that in like a civil, a civil court or a civil resolution tribunal? Like, would would that be the other option? Like, if someone in a situation like this, okay, go to the media. I think is a good idea. But if you tried to dispute this in court, is that even possible? Well, the problem is it's so little. Yeah, uh, the amount of money. I mean, yeah, okay, we're getting up to ninety dollars and starting to be offensive. But you're gonna, you know, how much time are you gonna take out of your life? Right. Um, you know, when you're counting, uh, thinking of the time that's out of your life for working, like what's your what? What is your time worth? Um, yeah. If it goes to uh, if it was to go to the civil resolution tribunal, I suppose uh, you'd probably go through all that effort of filing at the civil resolution tribunal, writing up your submissions, sending in your submissions in uh, the response from the uh, from the parking company, and then a decision from the civil resolution tribunal. Uh, you know, at that point, at that point, I suppose the taxpayers are into it for five hundred or a thousand dollars. You know, like it's just. It just seems like a, a a step or a method to just sort of screw the little guy. 
Yeah. Um, and that's the unfortunate thing. Yeah, no, it's probably not worth 90, 90 bucks of your time and energy to, to dispute it. So good for this couple for standing up for themselves. I think that I think that's great. What do you think of this uh, the fine, the penalty here? I mean, you're you got a parking ticket, ninety bucks for on a parking ticket. What do you think of that amount? Yeah, well, this is the thing. Um, you know, it's a private lot, and they can set their rates, and they're into it for the money. And parking tickets are part of generating income. Um, and, you know, in some parts of the world, that might seem like a whole lot of money. But in Vancouver, I mean, you can blow through money so quickly in this city um, that it's not that much. But that's how they generate money. Uh, and, you know, you they, they take the position that you're bound by that contract. I take the position that it's still negotiable. Uh, after the fact, uh, which is why in cases where this has happened to me, uh, I've often sent a check for a smaller amount and said, this is the amount I'm willing to settle. If you cash the check, you're settling it. If you don't cash the check, then I'll see you in court. Okay, I love that. I haven't had to do this for 20 years, so (laughs) I don't don't know that they they know about my strategy now. Well, I really love that strategy, and I I wonder if any other people have tried it out there. Like, if you get a ticket that's just absolutely excessive – and you say, look, I'm, here's how much I'm going to settle for you, mail them a check, and then let them come and shake you down if they, if they really want to. So does that usually work for you? Well, so long as they don't, uh, is, is they cash the check and you've made it yeah. clear that it's a settlement and it's full and final settlement. Uh, right. it's, they've never come back after me, and I know a few other people who've done it uh, on my advice. And uh, you know, I learned this from my my mother's husband, who was a businessman, successful guy who did this for a long time. Anytime that happened to him, but um, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it, how it's worked out for other people. But if they right. cash your check, I'm telling you, you know, you're going to go to court and you're going to show them, look, they cashed my check. Here's the letter. It says full and final settlement. Um, you know, the, uh, and, and what is the real damages? What are the real damages? You know, this yeah. is really, it's an issue of trespass. Um, and, and what are the actual damages versus, you know, what they say is a penalty. Okay. Uh, the actual damages are the, are the next hour of parking or whatever. Okay. Talking about fighting back against an unfair ticket with my guest, traffic lawyer, Paul Doroshenko. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Stuart in Vancouver. Hi, Stuart. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Hi, Paul. I appreciate the topic. Uh, I got a parking ticket quite recently, which was a bit strange. I was parked at a fitness center. I have a decal. I'm legally allowed to park in that lot. However, I had reverse parked in, which being European is pretty normal for me. I always park in. And they gave me a ticket because apparently it was unsafe. So that's the first part of the question. There's a second part, but maybe you should answer the first one. Is so, are they allowed to give me a ticket for that? So you backed into the parking stall, is that right? Backed in? Yep, that's right. Okay. Well, I, I, <laughs> that's not allowed. That, how is that dangerous? Why would they, why would they give me t- Paul? What do you think of that? I, that? That seems completely ridiculous to me. People back in all the time, oh, yeah. and, and usually they're making the decision that it's the, the the least likely way that you're going to collide with somebody else and it's going to be the easiest way to get in. I mean, there's times that you're looking at it and you can see there's like overhead ventilation or something, a uh, uh, sprinkler system. Uh, there can be a reason that you they don't want you to back in and it may be there may be a sign. But I've, I've never heard of anybody getting a ticket for something like this. And you would think, you know, what, what always baffles me is like, what is your job as a company? Your job is to provide a service and to make people happy, right? 
And this oh. is not making your customers happy. You know, you could just put a notice on the window and say, next time this worked out, but please don't back in because of this reason and explain it. But to give somebody a ticket, um, yeah. it's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I, my, I've my, never heard of it before. Go ahead, Stuart. I think that's the reason. I think there was some form of piping. Uh, I actually okay. wrote to the, the managing director and said, this is ridiculous. I said, I have a backup camera on my car. I reverse in because it's safer. If I have to reverse out, I can't see when I'm reversing out. So this is the safer way for me to do it. I've got a backup camera. I'm not going to hit any piping that's there. Uh, and they wrote back and said, no, you still owe us for the ticket. So wow. I'm not going to pay. Okay. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Stuart. I know you got another question there, but just in the interest of time here, I want to move along. Jim in Chilliwack. Jim, go ahead. I, uh, my mom was uh, in residential care for her last few years. Uh, it was attached to a hospital, so the uh, it, it used to really bother me that you had to pay for parking at a hospital anyway. And I found a way where uh, the dispenser, the ticket dispenser, um, they all have a 1-800 number you can call if there's a problem with the machine. So I would put the wrong coins in it. Don't know if any of them take coins anymore, but I'd stick a quarter or, or a dime or a nickel in, and it would come up with a failure code. And you copy the code down, phone the one eight hundred number, and write the you know write the reference number down, put that on your dashboard, and you won't get a ticket because you've got a dispute going on that you couldn't get a ticket out. Uh, I don't know if it would work. Hmm. I don't know if any of them use coins anymore because you know probably all on plastic on your debit card or credit card. But uh, well, isn't that, that one kind, way isn't, I found the game? It did it all the time. Isn't that kind of cheating though? Sure it is. Yep, I admit it. Okay. He he admits it. Paul, what do you think? Well, it's not just cheating. It's a criminal offense, and I'm glad we don't have Jim's last name um, (laughs) because uh, it's obtaining parking by fraud. It's obtaining a service by fraud, right? Yeah. Don't do it. You know, the companies that own the lots have to pay for the lot. They have to pay for maintenance. They have to pay for property tax. Uh, They've got to to fix any repairs on it. They've got to deal with with people who park over time. I mean, there still has to be some limits on it, right? Uh, It does cost money to have one of those lots, and uh, stealing from them is not appropriate either. Okay. Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um, recently, I was parking in Kitsilano, a street parking, so that's the city meters. And using the app, I was required to enter the vehicle type and given the option of motorcycle, car, or truck. Um, I didn't actually complete the parking because I was very turned off, and I, I assumed that I was going to be charged based on the vehicle type I had. But if not, and if it's not yet doing that, it's obviously preparing people for that eventuality. And I feel like this is, a, you know, a huge overstretch on our freedoms. And it obviously it makes us oh, all worry. So you think that you think maybe in the future, if you say you've, you're driving a truck, they charge you more, maybe? That's exactly what's coming if it isn't oh. already functioning like that. Paul, what do you think? Paul, we got 30 seconds. Your thoughts. That's an invasion of privacy issue, and it's something that all sorts of people have different feelings about. Um, the uh, We're slowly uh, sort of like the the the, uh, the frog in the water, right, where the, it heats up and we just become more and more accustomed to cameras all over the place, giving our information all over the place, and people are understandably concerned. Okay. But maybe... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, my pleasure. 
All right, here we go now with the rat population explosion in Vancouver. Is that what's going on here? This one really got started with a viral TikTok video of rats uh, scurrying around in a Vancouver alley. If you have not seen this video, I encourage you to give it a miss because it's disgusting. I I find these rats absolutely stomach-churning, disgusting animals. When you take a look at this video, oh, man, it's so gross here. So I encourage you not to watch it, but thousands of people have. This thing's gone viral here. Why are there so many rats in this particular alley, but also everywhere in Vancouver? So the latest numbers out on the rattiest cities in Canada now, this is put out by the Orkin Pest Control Company here, Number one, now this is the only good news, is Vancouver's not number one there. Toronto, number one, rattiest city in Canada. Now, we're not far behind. Vancouver, number two. And then, you know, check this out here now. The top ten, five of the cities in the top ten in the whole country for most rats are in British Columbia. So you got Vancouver, number two. Burnaby, Kelowna, number three. You've got Victoria and Richmond in there as well. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Jasmine Bala. Rodents on the streets, in your homes, and in stores. They're everywhere. And if you feel like there's more of them around lately, you're right. Toronto was number one in Orkin Canada's annual list of Canada's rattiest cities for 2022. But Vancouver took second place. And in fact, half of the top ten were in British Columbia. Okay, now why is it happening? Could it be because of a ban on rat poison? Have a listen. This is more from Jasmine here. Let's listen. If you're not killing off rodents quick enough, they're going to they're gonna multiply, right? And now they have more time to multiply because the province has banned certain rat poisons used to kill them off. Second generation anticoagulant rodenticide. Okay, second generation anticoagulant rodenticide. I'm not sure what that is, but I know Mike Laundry does. Mike is the pest control expert. He's a owner of Westside Pest Control. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Mike. Hey, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing good, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. So this has gotten a lot of attention here. Is there Are there more rats in the city, would you say? The rat population is always increasing, Mike. It's just, uh, that's just an effect of, of where we live the nice mild climate that we have here. I know on paper we're officially number two, but it would not surprise me if several pockets of Vancouver, maybe not the entire city, but several pockets are one, two, three, four, and five if you're just looking at a few block radius. Okay, what about this this ban of this particular poison here now? Can you explain this here? Now, you heard in that report, the, the poison that it was banned here, second-generation anticoagulant rodenticide. What is that? Uh, so years ago, it was only, there was only first-generation products, and a lot of, uh, a lot of some of our, our middle-aged guests like myself and some of the older guests will remember warfarin. Probably a lot of them had it sitting in their, in their sheds at, at, at some point. Well, warfarin is a first-generation anticoagulant, and rodents essentially um, became immune to it, and it was no longer effective. So as a means to 
continue to use rodenticides, the different companies producing them started manufacturing second generation rodenticides and and uh, they've 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 worked to be honest there's some of the second generation products I think were starting to lose some of their effectiveness in the rodent populations as as well um, one yeah. of the misconceptions is that first generation means the poison isn't as strong or isn't as good and second generation means you're going to get them every time that's a total misconception and that's one of the frustrations for us as a pest control industry is there are first generation products that are more potent and can cause greater issues in the local raptor populations owls etc um and one of the biggest challenges for for us um, and for these raptors is is people are looking to other means now and maybe going south right. of the border getting products that are much worse than the second generation oh. things that we were using 18 months ago. Right. And when you talk about raptors and owls and that kind of thing, I mean, this is the concern around these bands is that these birds of prey will eat these rats that have ingested this poison. And then the, and then the bird, the owls end up dying too, correct? A hundred percent. So the yeah. second generation anticoagulants that companies were using in BC legally prior to the ban, those products were developed to not cause secondary poisoning in raptors most of the oh. raptors that were that there was concern about also had evidence of second generation products that had been banned in bc for 15 years or first generation products that have been banned or brought in from from other places so it, it's uh rodenticides have a place out outside there isn't a lot of use for them um, what's challenging for homeowners and pest control companies is indoor situations, not so much with rats outside, but with mice inside of a home. That's where it becomes a challenge. Anyone who's battled a family of mice in their, in the, in their home knows that not everyone goes for peanut butter or cheese on a snap trap. Okay. You support the poison ban, though, correct? Because I know you, you care about this stuff. You care about the environment and what, what goes into the environment. I support the I support the direction that that the that the that the poison ban is going in, um, the the way that it was rolled out, and, um, and the second as as I mentioned, I'm not in I'm not in full support of all second generation rodenticides being being banned. I think okay. that they, I think that they have a place. It's again, it's really unfortunate. There are there are stronger first generation anticoagulants that are still permitted for, for use that I think don't have any place. Um, and there are second generations. They all just fall under a certain category. You, you've got to draw the line somewhere. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are second generation products that I think could still be effective for jobs such as eliminating mice inside of a very challenging situation within a structure that we no longer have mm. any use for. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things, you know, you've got to draw a line somewhere. Unfortunately, it's not a straight line. Okay, Mike, real quickly, and then we'll, we'll take some listener calls here because we always get a lot of calls when Mike is on. So let's talk a little bit about some eco-friendly 
ways to control pests. And this is the time of year. I know your company starts to get busy. It's springtime, so there's more creepy crawlies around. Let's talk about some uh, some eco-friendly methods to control pests. What would be at the top of your list there? Um, well, I mean, any if you're you know if we're, if we're talking rodents, anytime you're dealing with, with rodents, the first thing you want to do is try and find out how they're getting in and out of the structure. Um, we haven't applied poison inside inside a person's home for rats in the 14 years that we've been in business. Uh, it's, it's simple. Figure out how they're getting in and out. Use, use wire mesh. Use angle flashing. Use one-way doors. And, and, and let them out and don't let them back in again. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, and you may have to use snap traps inside of the structure. Um, it's quite simple. Um, uh, and the same, comes, the, the same goes for mice as well. You know, limit the use of rodenticides outside of the structure. Uh, when it comes to mice, sometimes you do need every tool in the toolbox. As a first option for low-level infestations, we always advocate no rodenticide, sealing off access points, and using snap traps only. If the infestations are, are really heavy, rodenticide use is sometimes needed for mice inside of a structure. But again, first focus on sealing off the access points. Otherwise, you're just having a problem continue again and again, um, okay. and, and it's not going to get any better. All right. My guest is Mike Laundry, Westside Pest Control. Mike, it's springtime, weather getting warmer. What about the insects coming into people's homes? This is a busy time for you, right? Yeah, when it when it finally uh, when it finally starts to feel a little more like 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 spring, a hundred percent. Once it's a thirteen, fourteen, fifteen degrees and a few more sunny days, then then uh, then yeah, the insects get really busy. We are already seeing a little bit of ant activity. They're usually the first pest to uh, to show up in in people's homes. The wasps come a little bit later. The termites come out a little bit later um but uh yeah absolutely we're rolling into it now yeah i bet we are those ants are on the march for sure let's take some calls here mike and langley hi mike go ahead yeah hi thanks uh uh, i heard mike's advertising before uh regarding an issue that we have uh, in our home uh and it's not invasive as far as health concerns but we have silverfish and uh, a buddy of mine uh, has mentioned diatomaceous earth, which we've put around the baseboards on concrete uh, or concrete floors in the basement and in areas upstairs. Uh, and it has worked okay, but still on a regular basis. Uh, my kids are seeing, you know, if they're up in the middle of the night at three in the, in the morning, uh, whatever, and, and turn the light on, they see the, uh, the oh. silverfish scattering. Yeah. So I want to get rid of those. How do I do that? Oh, man, I hate them too. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, so you want to be persistent with the diatomaceous earth. It's quite slow acting. The the crushed crustaceans, um, which is essentially what what is what is in diatomaceous earth, those really sharp particles are cutting the wet, the waxy exoskeleton of the insect. Um, so it's not an instant death for them, um, and some of them will avoid it. Uh, the one thing too is when you're when you're applying it, like use very 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 little and try to try to like poof it out in just a light mist so you can almost not see it on the floor that's going to make it effective it's if it's clumped up then it's not going to cut that waxy exoskeleton as as effectively so keep at it Um, as i mentioned on the show before if you have um, if you have pets in the home just be aware that those sharp particles if there's a lot of it around and they like to uh, and they like to sniff a lot 
Um, uh, it affects our pets' lungs the same way as fiberglass insulation is is for us. Oh. It's good for the planet, but maybe not good for everyone's lungs. So just be cautious when using it. Yeah, diatomaceous earth is the name of this stuff. And I've just been Googling it here, Mike. You can buy this stuff just pretty much anywhere. Hardware store has it. 100%. Yeah, yeah it's, okay. a, it's, a great, it's a great product. But again, near where anyone's going to be potentially breathing it in and ingesting it, just be, yeah. just be cautious. And, and as always, keep that humidity down. So turn bathroom fans on, turn kitchen fans on whenever you're whenever you're cooking showering and even in between those times there's a lot of humidity and moisture in your house Mm. keep the humidity down and the silverfish will not be able to reproduce scott in north delta hi scott go ahead oh hey guys great show um woodpecker i'm in my house you know you got that you know i I can't remember the name of what you call it that little vertical pipe that goes above your roof um you know, come above the kitchen. Anyways, this little woodpecker is constantly tapping away and is driving me crazy. Any suggestions or thoughts on how to deal with a situation like that, Mike? Uh, so if it's happening right now and it's just been happening for the last week or so, it's probably just trying to find a mate. So this will end shortly. Um, really nothing to be too alarmed about. It may happen again next year too, but I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't give it too much worry or too much con- concern um, it's just, uh, uh, yeah, it'll, it'll pass soon. Um, if they come back again next year, you could look at hanging something from it. If you can get up there, something re- reflective that might deter them from, uh, from going there in the first place. Mm. Okay, Scott, thank you for that. Nancy in Vancouver. Hi, Nancy, go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to, uh, make a comment. We've been traveling, um, to some warmer places in Europe and Mexico and, they have so many cats there and no rats anywhere. And I'm wondering if more people in Vancouver should be getting cats around to take care of some well, of the problems. That's an interesting thought. I know one of my neighbors, Mike, has an outdoor cat, and I actually like seeing the cat sort of on patrol around the neighborhood, you know, uh, sort of keep down the rodentia. But what do you think? A hundred percent. I mean, there's, there's a reason why so many farms have, have barn cats, because they... They work um, uh, now in, in urban in, in, in urban settings. Uh, uh, you, most of uh, most of our pets have become quite habituated to uh, you know a, a fancy meal being being presented for them. Um, uh, so their drive to maybe uh, catch as many mice um, uh, as in a rural environment might not be quite as strong. But uh, I think they're they're a really effective tool and. Mice, mice have learned for years that cohabitating with a cat is not a good idea. So even just as a deterrent, um, they can be uh, super helpful inside a structure. Mike, where, what's your website? How can people find your company here? Uh, WestsidePestControl.com. All right. Mike, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. 100%. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.